Well, we now come to one of the most famous uh, narratives of the scriptures. In fact, if you get uh, most kids' Bibles, we'll have this story in it. Uh, it's, many of you know Sally Lloyd-Jones. Uh, what is it? The Jesus Storybook Bible. Thank you. Um, she also has a small one called the Tiny Bear Bible. This is for little, little kids. It's kind of like a teddy bear furry on the outside. has either 11 or 12 stories in it, and all the stories are to a rhyme, right? And uh, this story is in there, one of the, one of the 11 or 12 that uh, is thought to be very essential that needs to be in there. And it goes actually like this. Uh, the disciples thought that they might drown. Their tiny boat, it tossed up and down. Help, wake up. Quickly, Lord, they cried. The storm is big and the waves are high. Jesus said, stop. The waves obeyed. Why had they ever been afraid? The storm was big, but God was right there, just like he's with us, tiny bear. Now, that's, that's pretty typical, uh, the way people hear this story. Um, you know, the disciples found themselves in a major storm, but God was with them in the boat. Jesus was right there. And Jesus is with us in the storms of our life. Now, that's not entirely wrong. And, you know, frankly, I've taught the passage that way myself years ago. So it's not that it's wrong. It's just that it, it might get there a little bit too fast. Because there's a couple stops we have to do uh, that Mark is really trying to make a claim in the passage. And we'll get to that whole idea of Jesus in the boat, in our boat, in the storms of life or whatever you want to say. But uh, we, we have to go through a different avenue first. Uh, Mark is really trying to show us the identity of Jesus uh, again, and more and more and more as the story goes. So the, the veil is being pulled back just a little bit more. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? And Mark wants to put that on full display in this passage. So let's just walk through the text. Our scene starts out pretty lighthearted. Verse 35, once again, on that, on that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, the disciples... Let us go to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him, uh, Jesus, with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. So it's a pretty nice scene. It's a, it's a great night, maybe. And they, if you remember chapter 4, Jesus had taught all day long. Uh, we're just given a small snapshot with some of the parables. But he spent the whole day teaching. It was a large crowd. He remembered he had to be out on the lake in order to teach them because the people kept crowding in. And So he, he taught all day, and you know he's tired. He's got ministry on the other side of the lake to do. Uh, and rather than walking around the lake, because uh, the, the crowd's all going to follow him, he, they get on the boat, let's head to the other side where Jesus can actually catch some rest as well. And you have to remember, some of these guys on the, on the boat now with Jesus were, were fishermen by trade, right? Peter, James, and John, we saw them earlier in the book. And for them, you know, I, I like to think of this scene kind of, you know, how I, I would envision like a shepherd or a farmer out in the field at night. And they're, they're you know, the, the farmer, he's a man of the soil. And he, he likes the smells out there. I, I think Peter and James and John, they're, they're out there in the boat and the smell of the water the feel of the, the gentle breeze moving the waves a little bit. And the stars are out. It's nighttime. 
-hmm. you know, we don't know exactly what happened, but maybe once they got out there and they're out there far enough, they kind of get the sail up and they just kind of kick back, lay back, lay down. Maybe Peter says to James or something, you know, this is crazy that, have you, have you really stopped to think about the last couple days? The miracles that Jesus has done have been amazing. I mean, he made that paralyzed man walk. And then he touched that leopard. Or leper. Leopard. <laughs> and then the, the teaching, you know, John, what, what do you think Jesus really means about, like, that we're going to be rejected? And what, what is going on? Like, this is amazing, though. I wonder what the next couple days will bring. Well, they're surely in for a surprise as the text goes on, verse 37. Out of nowhere, a great windstorm arose, which was common on this uh, water. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So we have a, a situation going on here. and Again, I'm just trying to think through the passage, what, what might have happened. You probably have a guy named Levi on the boat. Levi was a tax collector. He's not a fisherman by trade. And so the storm starts coming, and the text says that the boat is filling up. So the, the boat is busy filling up with water, and they're trying to get rid of the water. And maybe Levi says, hey, you guys, this is a lost cause. This is not working. Maybe we should wake up Jesus. And, you know, maybe he said that. And maybe the guys said, no, no, no. Sort of like when uh, Danica will go take a rest when we're driving on a long trip. And she'll say, wake me up if you need me. And I'll say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm not, not going to wake her up unless I absolutely need help, right? And so I could see James, Peter, James, and John say, no, 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 let the teacher sleep. We got this. We're going to take care of this. Levi, just keep going. Keep getting this water out of here. And they just keep going for it. Now, I don't know. I don't personally like water. I don't, I'm not a good swimmer. And I've actually never been on water where you can't see land. So this scene to me sounds absolutely terrifying. Because not only are they probably out there far enough where you couldn't see land should it be day, but it's also nighttime. And so they're being tossed to and fro now, when we were down uh, in Florida on our most recent trip, uh, we had the, the, the joy of having kayaks at the, at the place we were at. And uh, so we took them out a couple times, and it was pretty choppy. Uh, we went out one night, and uh, we, we should have been tipped off that by the fact that we were the only kayakers going out at night. But we thought, yeah, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, but you know, we're not going to go that long. It'll just be a couple hours or something. Kidding. <laughs> It ended up being a long time, but it was really, really windy when we got really far out there. And we got, when we got to the stopping point uh, where we were going to have to either come back on uh, this side of the, the island part or that side of the island. But either way, we had a long way back and we got out there and we were exposed to the wind and we were getting pelted by sand because we actually got off on shore for a bit and it was hurting. And so we realized, man, we, got, we have to get across 
quickly because this wind is crazy right now. So we tried to get out into our kayaks. Tally flipped over twice because uh, she couldn't get in it. And somehow now we realize we gotta get, we gotta get over there fast or we're sheltered by uh, some of the trees over there. So we're, we're trying to get over there and Danica was ahead with Tally and they got up and Sayla and I are now right in the middle of the Bay Area. And I look over at Sayla and she's like not even moving. She's rowing constantly, but not going anywhere because the, the waves and the wind were just constant. Now, these waves were only about that big. They were not really that big. But you could just feel the force of the water. And I'm trying to cheer her on and say, you got it, girl. And I, but I'm getting nervous because I'm a terrible swimmer. I don't know what I'm going to do. Now, that is nothing compared to what these guys are experiencing right now because these fishermen who know the sea have realized they've, they've met their match. They have nothing else to do. But meanwhile, as human as human could be, Jesus is over there sleeping. This is, I mean, if you ever go to the Phillips house for lunch or something, this is, this is Joby sleeping during a football game where everybody's cheering, and he's there sleeping. <laughs> How in the world do you sleep at a time like this? But this is, this is just as human as human could possibly be. We are limited creatures, and we need rest and sleep. And there he is, just totally zonked out. But eventually their tactics have run out, and they run over, and somebody gets the courage to wake up Jesus, and I don't know how the disciples said this, whoever said it, but I would imagine this was quite chaotic, the way they're talking to Jesus. Accusatory. Teacher, don't you care? Don't you care that we're perishing? Now, what, what they imagined that Jesus would do in this moment, I, I don't know. I mean, did, did they assume he could stop the water or just like, dude, grab a bucket? Like, we don't know. But they, they need help. And Jesus seems to be possibly one of the ways that they can get help. Quite frightening scene, but what is about to happen is even more frightening. Verse 39, Jesus awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, I, I think trying to imagine the scene is quite enjoyable, because I think it's, it's frightening. I mean, you have to think when it goes right from the chaos to the calm. I mean, that moment is something I would love to see. As it just continues, they keep being buffeted by the waters, and they're screaming at one another. They're being pelted on the face by the, by the water, and they're, oh, what are we going to do? There's no hope anymore. We're all going to perish. Do something. I can't see. Somebody help. What are we going to do? Peace!
And then Jesus turns to them. Which we're told they're filled with great fear. And there's good reason for that. Because I don't, I don't know if you ever watch, say, like, some magician, say, David Blaine or something on YouTube, and he does doing some street magic. Oftentimes, when he does this, he's doing it right before people's eyes. You know, he makes a two of diamonds be a three. It's clubs instantly. Like, how in the world do you do that? You watch people, and they, they start backing away. You see some people just tell them, like, get away from me. Because they, even though they know, like, I know you're just doing trickery, but that's too much for me. And what the disciples have just witnessed is somebody speak to the wind and to the waves? Who has that kind of power? Throughout the scriptures, from the very first page to the end, God constantly points to his ability to create the world and sustain the world as a display of his power. The opening page, repeated, God said, let there be light. God said, let there be animals. God said, God said, just by the, by the very voice of God, that sun that you can't even look at for more than two seconds, God spoke it into being. This, this universe, which just goes on and on and on. And God constantly points back to that. Who created these things? And just a few pages later, what does God do? But by the word of God, he destroys the whole earth. Sends rain to uh, come on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And what happens a few pages later? He tells Abraham trying to stir up faith in Abraham, says, Abraham, you go outside, look up at the sky, count them all. Abraham believes as he looks up at the stars and sees the great power of God. Perhaps he was like the psalmist in Psalm 8. Oh Lord, when I look at the heavens, the work of your hands, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. The heavens indeed display, declare the glory of God, as the psalmist says in Psalm 19. And then you keep reading, you get to Moses and the plagues. And what are the plagues? But it's demonstrating that God is the one who has the authority over all creation. And you only get three plagues in. And remember the, the magicians of, of Egypt are, are mimicking what, what God is doing in the first plague, the, 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 blood, uh, the, uh, the water turning into blood and then the frogs. And then you get to the third one with the gnats. I say that, this is the finger of God. We don't have that kind of power. We don't have that kind of trickery. Nobody can speak to the gnats and they go where you want them to. And he does it with the locusts. He does it with the hail. He does it with the plagues. He does it with the boils. He does it with turning off the sun for three days in darkness to demonstrate God alone has this kind of authority over nature. No man has this kind of power. No trickery can do this. Then you read a couple more pages, and it's time now for God to, he's gathered his people, he's going to give them the, the law. And what does he do? He calls Moses up on the mountain, and how does God dis display his power? 
earthquake, thunder, lightning, and the people shrink back in fear. You go on, the people are thirsty, how do they get water? God brings water right out of a rock. They're hungry, how do they get food out in the desert? God brings quail for 30 days to feed hundreds of thousands of people. On and on and on the scriptures go, pointing to God's power over, over nature to demonstrate that God is God and you are not. We think of Jonah as he's trying to run from God and God hurls a great windstorm and he's on a lake as well. And you remember what happens. Uh, the, the, you know, Jonah says, hey, you, know, you, you tossed me in the water and, and this will all be done. And so they, they ran out of resources as well. They take the prophet, they throw him in, and what happens? Instant calm, and what do they do? They fear God and worship. Why? Because only God has that kind of power over the wind and the waves. Job, trying to understand why the suffering, why is this happening? Why, 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 and what's God's final answer? Four chapters at the end of the book of Job. 38, 39, 40, 41. Job, where were you when I created the foundations of the earth? Job, can you speak to the clouds so that they rain? Can you do that? Job, are you there when the mountain, bo mountain goats give birth? Job, can you do this with creation? Can you do that with creation? And the answer, of course, is no. And that's why Job says, I put my hand over my mouth. I will speak no more. Only God has this kind of authority. Jesus regularly saying, why are you so afraid? Why don't you look at the birds? Look at them. Pay attention to them. Stop. Stop all the noise. Stop the rat race and look at the lilies. Just watch them. See that my Father cares for them. And all the way to the final pages, God will renew the whole creation by the word of his power. And so it's no wonder why these guys are afraid on the boat. I think one of the cool paintings would be, if anybody's interested, would be to paint this scene. How you think the disciples were at the exact moment after Jesus said, peace be still, and he turns to them finally and looks at them. I don't know what they would be, but if I were to paint it, I'd probably have one guy, maybe, maybe he's throwing up. Maybe one guy's passed out. Maybe one guy's grabbing the rail and he's, he's thinking, maybe I should just jump out of this thing. One guy's just totally frozen in fear. You'd be trying to communicate that the level of fear that is in these guys at this moment is incredible. This is like Isaiah in Isaiah 6. When he's given the vision of God and he's in the cherubim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. What does Isaiah do? He falls to the ground. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Or Peter, in another scene, when Jesus says, Peter, cast your net on the other side of the boat. And so Peter does, and they catch such a great uh, catch that Peter is terrified because he realizes only God is in my boat. And he says, away from me. Or John, in Revelation, as he's given a vision of the Son of Man, says he falls like a dead man. 
they realize they are in the presence of God himself. And only fear will, will set in at that point. So I think Mark's claim of the passage, what he's trying to help us to see, is something like this. It's very simple. Behold, the Jesus of Nazareth that we follow is the God who controls nature. Behold, I think he wants to say to the the, the reader, stop and try to take this in the way the disciples are right in that moment. I mean, a minute ago, Jesus was as human as human could be, conked out in the middle of a storm. And a minute later, he is as God as God can be, speaking to the wind of the waves, and they're trying to take it in. How do, how do I reconcile this? Who is this man? And I think Mark wants to ask us the same question. Who who do you say Jesus really is? This Jesus of Nazareth, who t- took on flesh, had brain, had blood, had bones, had skin, walked, got tired, is the very same one who created you and gives you breath today, sitting right here. And his goal, I think, as we read it, is to stir up fear. I think, even though the disciples might not fully be at where we, where we want them to be, uh, neither are we, by the way, right? This fear that they're experiencing is going to serve them. Like, to fear God is good, right? The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. This fear that they feel is going to serve them. And so I think what Mark would want us to do is to seek to grasp more fully the identity of Jesus, the true identity of who Jesus is. And we might say, well, that's a little bit easy for the disciples to experience. I mean, they're sitting in the boat. They saw this miracle. Of course they're going to fear Jesus. Well, I mean, one thing you could try today, your whole family could try this, to experience, okay, maybe, I, maybe I'm way less like God than, than I think I am sometimes. Why don't you go outside today sometime when, it, when the wind picks up and go out, stand on your sidewalk, make sure the neighbors are watching you, and give it a nice, nice try. Stop! I command you wind right there. And maybe go downtown, because that would be fun. We maybe see you on the news later. <laughs> You'll quickly realize you have absolutely no power. It's meant to make you feel small. We could also do what Jesus tells us to do, is to, to stop and, and look. We are dis- a distracted people. And to stop and look at the lilies, look at the birds, look at the trees. Uh, in uh, our seminary class uh, once years ago, when I was back in school, uh, we, in, in one of my Greek classes, we each were given a verse and we had to um, you know, translate it. And uh, one of my, my buddies, Pete, was uh, in the middle of the Matthew 6 uh, verse uh, talking about the, when Jesus says, consider the lilies. And so he, I mean, he had a really nice uh, presentation telling us what each word meant and the tenses of it. And it could mean this, could mean that. This is what it means. I mean, did wonderful, great uh, scholarship. And uh, then we had to take a break for uh, chapel. It was in the middle of our 
uh, it was like three three hour chunks, but there was a chapel right in the middle. And so we had to go to chapel, and uh, the professor uh, stopped Pete on our way to chapel, and he said, Pete, I, I don't want you to go to, I want you to skip chapel today and go sit and watch the flowers for the whole chapel. And so Pete did that. He went and looked at the flowers. And then he said, I want you to come back in and tell us what that verse means again. And suddenly when he came back, he had a whole different idea. His, a lot of his verbiage was the same, but there was something else going on in his heart and mind. Because he actually stopped and looked. And looked at the power of God, the majesty of God, the wisdom of God, to care for this little old flower in the city of Chicago. And perhaps something that we could do uh, in the weeks ahead is just to stop and look. Look at the wonder of creation and let just the, the fear of God drip in a little bit. The identity of Jesus, the one who holds uh, all things by the word of his power. And let the fear of God drip in. Because I think uh, when we can fear Jesus a little bit like the disciples, when we embrace this a little bit more, we will be changed. So I just want to think about that. A little bit. If, if, if we grasp a, a clear, more clear picture of the identity of Jesus and embrace it more deeply, it drips down deeper into our soul that Jesus indeed controls the very nature, all of creation, all of nature, and we are stirred up with fear, what will the, the good results be? Now, the first thing, I think, would be our obedience to Jesus would actually become more natural, rational, desired, and I don't think it's because we're afraid, to, we're afraid to disobey him necessarily. And I mean, that may be part of it. But it's actually, we go, wait a second. Almighty God, the one who created everything, who knows what's best and what's good for me, if he's commanded me to do something, even if I don't feel like it's right, even if it doesn't make sense right now, I can trust him and I will. For example, let's say you wanted to learn piano. And you had the opportunity to learn from one of the, an expert pianist. And this person you, you very much respect. And in one of the early lessons uh, with this, this teacher, who you, you respect and you've, you've learned a lot from in the past, like reading their stuff and such, they sit down with you and they say, you know, I want you to reposition your hands. Now, this is going to feel very weird for you, but in the long run, this is really going to help you in your playing. And maybe at first you're like, ah, this, is, this feels so bad. This actually is, is starting to hurt my wrist. I'm, I'm, there's certain muscles that aren't working right. And I'm tired. But do you, so do, you, do you say, well, I'm not going to do that? Of course you don't. Because you respect the teacher. It's their identity. You say, I, I, they, they know what they're talking about. So I will do what they say, even though it doesn't feel right, because I trust them. And obedience then becomes natural and desired because it's the identity of the person who's telling you. If we truly understand who God is, who Christ is, God's word is something that we desire to follow. It doesn't always make the immediate sense to us right there. But we say, I trust him. I trust his identity. Uh, second, uh, when the identity of Jesus lands on us a little bit more, risk for the sake of the kingdom is more normalized. It's reasonable. Does Jesus control all nature today? Can anything happen to you today, any accident, whether by malice 
or just happenstance happen apart from Jesus? Could any disaster happen to you without the, the command, the go-ahead of Jesus? Nothing can. If Jesus truly owns the beasts of the field and the cattle on a thousand hills, then there's nothing that can happen. If Je- when Jesus talks about my father, he cares for those birds and not one of them falls to the ground without his command. Not one. And the hairs on your head are more valuable than, than, than those birds. Those birds are like nothing. I see dead birds outside my door all the time. This tree that's got tons of birds. And not one of them can fall without the power of God. Now the very same one who has that kind of authority over all nature also says, I want you to go and sacrifice and risk for the sake of the kingdom. Go serve and lay down your life for others. And we have to put both of those together. The hard thing is that oftentimes we shrink back from the command to go. And I don't think then that the solution is not to just try to have more courage. The solution is to get a better, clear, more clear picture of who this Christ is. Because when we get a more clear picture of who he is, it stirs up fear and actually it moves us to be willing to risk for the cause of the kingdom. Uh, third, we get to the, I, th- I think, where you can say we are more stabilized in difficult circumstances. So this, this is the idea of Jesus is in your boat. Jesus is in the storms of life. When we understand the identity of Jesus, it stirs up fear, but it stirs up confidence. Because the very one who speaks to the waves and speaks to the winds, he's with me. Jesus promised to be with his people wherever they go. So when we're afraid of life, when we're full of anxiety, it's right to ask our own heart. Who is the one who promised he would be with me? Well, it's easy to say, well, Jesus did. Yeah, who is that Jesus? Who is that Jesus of Nazareth? He's the very one who speaks to the wind, the one who speaks to the waves. That's the one who promised to be with me. And that's the one who is in control in this situation. So take, for example, let's, let's say uh, you, you know, you, your car broke down and, and your cell phone's not working. And you're either you know, in a rough part of the city, there's high crime, or you're in the middle of nowhere, whichever one you think would be more scary. Right? And let's say you're all alone. That, that's a scary place to be. You've got to walk somewhere and try to find safety. Now let's say I'm with you. You might feel a little bit better, but especially if you're out in the middle of nowhere, let's be honest, I'm not going to be much help out there. Probably won't be much in the city either. I don't know what I could do. But I'm a little bit of comfort, right? Because you have somebody with you, so there's a little bit of comfort there. But let's say you have like a battalion of Marines who are fully armed, and they say, we're going to be with you. We're going to make sure you get safe. Right? Suddenly, you, you, what is scary is, is not as scary anymore because the identity of the people who are with you. And your security is fully dependent at that point on who you believe those people are. 
No, if if they if they say they're Marines, you don't believe them. You're you're still scared. But if if they are who they say they are, you feel restful. And this Jesus, the one who calmed the wind and calmed the waves, is with his people. He's the very same one. He was then, he will be today, and he will be tomorrow. There's a a, a song that uh, many of you may maybe know. Uh, it's called "Eye of the Storm." Uh, this was out a couple years ago. It's actually more like a kind of radio type Christian Christian song. Um, anyhow, this was. Uh, I remember a time, this was back in 2017, uh, my mom was in hospice care and uh, she was right at the last uh, couple days there. And I was quite exhausted traveling back and forth to, to see her. Um, meanwhile, Dupree had a, a surgery, not emergency, emergency surgery, but we had to get this taken care of quickly. And we also had uh, a beehive and the bees had swarmed, not that big of a deal, but just throwing on more stress. And so that was uh, stressful. And then some other stuff was going on. There was, there was, oh, there was a wedding that I was officiating the next couple of days. Uh, and then, oh yeah, Crossway's budget. Uh, we were thinking we had to let one of our pastors go. So all, all of this like just piled on and I'm on my way to go see my mom uh, in hospice care. And uh, I'm just, I felt so alone because I was exhausted. And I was just asking the Lord, Lord, just, just give me one song, just one song on the radio to just help me know that you care, that you're with me. And sure enough, that song, Eye of the Storm, came on right when I finished praying. In the eye of the storm, you remain in control. In the middle of the war, you guard my soul. You alone are the anchor. You alone. What was that? When my sails are torn, your love surrounds me in the eye of the storm. Brothers and sisters, this Jesus promised to be with you no matter where you go, no matter what you do. And I think a great prayer you could pray for your mom today on Mother's Day is that God would give her a more clear picture of the identity of Jesus, that she would have a deeper fear of Christ, that she would be set free from the cares of the world. Would that God would fill Crossway with moms who fear Christ and are set free from the cares of the world. Well, as we move to the Lord's table, one of the great benefits also of trusting in the identity of Christ as our fear of Christ increases is that our trust and rest and salvation uh, continues to grow as well. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'll, I'll just wonder, how do, how do I know that my penalty was fully paid. Well, the answer, the one who died in my place, the one who died in your place if you put your trust in Christ, is the very one who can command the wind and the waves. It's God himself. That payment was perfect and it was full, and your salvation for all who trust in Christ is complete.